Well, it's uh, that time again for us to delve into the Word of God together, and we're in Galatians chapter 5, looking at just one phrase of verse 22. We have been. This is the third week now, and um, I am um, happy to say that we are going to be moving on or moving off this today and, and, and on to something else next week, but uh, we still have a few more things to discuss in our introduction, and I'm looking forward to doing that. So... Um, We've been spending time laying down the foundation for our study on the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5.22, and we will begin that next Lord's Day, as I say. And I think the fruit of the Spirit is one of the greatest deterrents to ungodliness and one of the greatest promoters of godliness in our lives that God has ever given us, which is why I want to take our time through this. We tend to underestimate the impact of the fruit of the Spirit. And a, a sound knowledge of the fruit of the Spirit will keep up or keep us rather from two of the most common debilitating situations that plague the church today. One is the great lack of this fruit in the life of the church, which becomes apparent when we compare the church today with the church in bygone eras. Uh, the late Martin Lloyd Jones alluded to this comparison over 70 years ago. Let me read to you what he says, quote, I wonder how we fare when we compare ourselves with our forefathers. They were so active and were so idle. Those men believed in prayer meetings. They went to prayer meetings. They prayed. They had their fellowship meetings, their class meetings, their society meetings. They wanted to talk about these things, about the spiritual life and the problems of the spiritual life. They lived their Christian life. The They organized missionary societies. There was a great activity in their life, but somehow the idea has crept in that to be a Christian means uh, a general subscription to certain views and and only an occasional attendance at the house of God and the means of grace. We sit and listen. We receive, but we do nothing. There is no Christian activity in our lives. Let every man examine himself in light of this word. Lloyd-Jones, as I said, said that 70 years ago. He actually wrote it in his commentary in 2 Peter, which we'll have occasion to look at in just a few moments. But the teaching of the fruit of the Spirit is so needed in light of how far the church has come in the wrong direction. And with the postmodern disdain for history, this situation will get only more difficult for the local church as more and more young people disinterested in history become Christians and flood the church. The other bad situation for the local church is its great tendency for busyness and mistaking that for the fruit of the Spirit. Well, we're not idle. We're, we're making things happen for Christ. But instead of producing genuine lasting fruit, the truth really is this, that that they have simply become consumed with busyness. So another word from Lloyd-Jones is appropriate here. He says, quote, No one in the New Testament ever believed in mere bustling and busyness and rushing hither and thither in order that we may be very active. That is not the New Testament appeal at all. The New Testament is not interested in mechanical efforts and activities In the church today, we have multiplied our institutions and our conferences, and there are people who who are tremendously active, but it is not the activity that is spoken of in the New Testament. 
the Apostle Peter does not exhort us to be busy in doing things. He exhorts us and urges us to strive to become like Christ. End of quote. Lloyd-Jones' point is that when we be what we have become in Christ, we're only then truly productive. And I hope to show you in the last leg of our, introduc our introduction how we fulfill the very, th that very process with the fruit of the Spirit and prevent ourselves from either of these sinful situations at PRBC. Now, our introduction so far has set out to answer certain questions in parts one and two. Questions like these, why study the fruit of the Spirit? Of what value is it to us today? What exactly is the fruit of the Spirit? And in what way is it unique? And in answering those questions, we established at least three solid biblical conclusions about this particular fruit so far. Three. First, we said it's fruit that is generated by the Holy Spirit and therefore spiritual. Second, we said it's fruit that is unique to the Holy Spirit and therefore found only in Him. And third, as a result, the Spirit produces it only in Christians. Now, we add to that list three more conclusions, three or four more conclusions, as I hope to prove they are so vital to our Christian walk. So I'm, I'm asking you really to pay very close attention to what I have to say this morning. You're going to have to think a little bit more than usual through the things I'm bringing to you today, because perhaps you've not heard them before. I don't know. But with that said, we begin with the fourth conclusion, and that's this. The fruit, this fruit is what we are before it is what we do. It is what we are before it is what we do. That is to say, it is a disposition that leads to action. It's fruit that is both a disposition and an action, but it is a disposition first. What I mean by this is this fruit is indicative of what a Christian is since it belongs to the new nature. Remember, Jesus discussed two trees in Matthew 12, 33. And we mentioned that in part one of our introduction. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The grammar of that verse is best understood as, a pre as presenting a condition. If you make the tree good, then its fruit will be good. If you make it bad, then it will produce bad fruit. The idea is that the tree produces fruit according to its nature, which is something we've mentioned before. Just as an apple tree cannot produce grapes or an orange tree, bananas, so an evil nature cannot produce righteous acts. But redeem the person by the blood of Jesus Christ, you turn a bad tree into a good tree, and the believer is sure to produce good fruit. And since fruit is a byproduct of our nature, it's accurate to say that what we are by nature will be demonstrated by what we do. Now here's how that conclusion works out practically in us. If we're by nature loving, we will love the way God calls us to love. If we are by nature patient, then we will be patient or have the patience of Job. If we are by nature self-controlled, then we will restrain ourselves from sinful behavior. Can you, see? Can you see that the display of this kind of fruit is in keeping with the nature? 
Correspondingly, then, non-Christians will not produce this fruit because it is not in their nature to do so. Only those who are born again can and will. So what I'm arguing here is that the fruit of the Spirit is first a disposition, a condition of the heart, and it will naturally produce, therefore, certain unmistakable behavior. You know, there is a very strong connection between the behavioral aspect and the cognitive aspect of this fruit. Redeemed actions are first conceived in thought form in our hearts. And once conceived, the thought has the potential of becoming a behavior. Don't we talk about this same connection in the lives of unbelievers? We, we say unbelievers are sin, sinners because they're by nature sinners. No one is born blameless and then acquires a sin nature by sinning. That's bad theology. It's the other way around. Unbelievers sin because they are by nature sinners. And when an unbeliever is redeemed and becomes a Christian, his old nature is replaced with a new nature that will necessarily produce its own unique fruit. And proof of that, we could go anywhere really in the New Testament, but I think Paul's personification of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is as good a place as any. He cleverly speaks of how Christians should behave by personifying love. Love does this, love does that. It keeps no record of wrongs. It believes all things. Christians can display holiness because they have first been made holy. You see that? Without the change in nature, that would be impossible. No one can produce righteous works if he hasn't first been declared righteous. Now, maybe you can understand why it's accurate to say that the fruit of the Spirit is both a disposition and an action, but it's a disposition before it's an action. It's what we are. And what we are is important because it's what we are before it is what we do. With that hopefully set in our minds, let me introduce the fifth conclusion to you. It grows out of the one that we just rehearsed with you, and it is equally vital to our Christian walk, and we understand it, and we, if we understand it, and if we get it right, it could be very powerful, impact us greatly. And it goes like this. This fruit is what we do before it's what we feel. That is to say, it's action that leads to emotion. The display of these fruits of the Spirit are made up of actions and emotions, but are actions first. Now, be careful not to confuse what I just said in the last or, or in the fourth conclusion with this one. There is a clear difference between them. One has to do with the nature of the person and speaks of a disposition that leads to action. This next one has to do with the nature of the fruit itself, and it speaks of each as an action that leads to an emotion. Now, you might be thinking, well, isn't a disposition an emotion? No. A disposition is not the same as an emotion, and we must be careful not to reduce any one of these fruits of the Spirit to mere emotion. Famous English Puritan Jonathan Edwards cautions his readers in his well-known work, Religious Affections, not to confuse affections with emotions. His word affection is my word disposition. Mm -hmm. 
Here's what he said, quote, the affections and emotions are frequently spoken of as the same, and yet in the more common use of speech, there is in some respect a difference. An affection is a word that is in its ordinary significant signification seems to be something more extensive than emotion, being used for all vigorous, lively actings of the will or inclination. But emotions, for those that are more, are those that are more sudden and whose effects on the animal spirits are more violent and the mind more overpowered and less in its own command, end quote. It's very interesting how he describes these. It takes a while to get into Edward's mind, but as far as Edward's was concerned, an affection, a disposition, a condition of a person's nature that, that involved the intellect and the will, and it can be commanded. Whereas raw emotion, which he calls animal spirits, are more violent and overpowers a person. Edwards spoke of the affections of the mind as, quote, the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and the will of the soul, end quote. He saw two parts to affection. He said, quote, the understanding of something, and then on the basis of what is understood, the inclination either to embrace it or not. That is what the affection is all about. He explained that, quote, holy affections are not heat without light, but evermore arise from the information of the understanding. Some spiritual instruction that the mind receives some light or actual knowledge by which the child of God is graciously affected because he sees and understands something more of divine things than he did before, more of God or Christ, and of the glorious things exhibited in the gospel, he has some clearer and better view than he had before when he was not affected, end quote. So I want to make it clear, as clear as I possibly can, that our last conclusion, number four, established that the fruit of the Spirit is both a disposition and an action, but a disposition, a condition of the heart, a mindset, a posture first. This is not emotion. It is not about how we feel so much as it is about how we think and how we are poised to act. Now, our next truth, this fifth one, turns our attention away from disposition to emotions and states that the fruit itself is made up of both actions and emotions, but it is first an action before it's an emotion. Now, why is this truth so vital to the production of our spiritual fruit and to our Christian walk? And hopefully, hopefully I haven't confused you at all. We'll, we're, we're, we're hoping that, you know, pastors hope that we don't create more questions than we answer, and if we do, that, that we don't somehow bring you into a fog. Um, so you've got to think, through, think with me through these things. Why is this, this truth so very important? Because it says that God expects us to display this fruit that we are by nature designed to produce whether we feel like it or not. 
That's why I say that the fruit itself is an action before it's an emotion. If you never feel like being patient with a particular person, well, then you'll never be patient with them. You cannot wait to, you cannot wait to feel like loving someone or treating that person with kindness before you actually perform loving and kind acts to him. Now, there are times when you don't feel very strongly about loving someone or being patient with somebody, and, and your feelings become a driving force behind, uh, behind uh, uh, preventing you from loving. But, but there are also times when you do feel like loving somebody, and those emotions do propel you to action as well. We're not denying that. But what happens, tell me, what happens when there is no emotion at all? What happens? What happens when you don't feel like loving somebody or being kind to somebody or being self-controlled in a particular context? That, that does happen. And what happens when you don't feel like being that kind, patient, peaceful towards your neighbor? Is the lack of emotion in this area a good excuse to disobey? And how do I get back the emotion that corresponds to these particular actions? Maybe you have a, an idea of just how vital then it is to get this right. You see, many in the church who are so experience-oriented and emotionally driven will interpret the fruit of the Spirit as mere emotion and will not display them if they don't feel like it. You follow that? You see how that, that happens? They'll not love someone if they don't feel like loving that person or rejoice in a trial if they're not feeling in a joyful mood. They, if they're impatient because they simply don't feel much like putting forth the effort to be patient, then they will rest in that excuse. The fruit of the Spirit does involve our emotions, yes. Make no mistake about that. But the fruit cannot be an emotion first or you'll never display the fruit in situations where you don't want to. I've been told by many in the counseling room, Pastor Borelli, I may be loving by nature, as you point out, but I am not loving characteristically by experience. I'm not experiencing this. And they don't feel much like loving someone that hurt them, much less their enemy. So what's to be done in this situation? Well, simply this. And when I say simply, I mean it's not complicated. It may be challenging, but it's not complicated. In those instances where you don't feel like displaying a fruit of the Spirit, you must override your feelings for the sake of your neighbor and put into action the particular fruit of the Spirit that the situation demands. Are you saying that I have to force myself to be what I am capable of being but might not feel like being? Yes, I am. That's exactly what I'm saying. Well, that doesn't sound right. To force myself against my feelings to act biblically? Are you sure? Well, I assure you, it, it is right to force yourself against contrary feelings. In fact, the English Puritan Thomas Watson, one of my favorite, used even stronger language than I have. He said that we must commit holy violence to ourselves when it comes to obeying Christ. Watson 
meant by that that we have to make sinful acts difficult and the righteous acts easy. Do what it takes to your life in order not to sin the same sin over again. If you have to amputate something out of your life that tempts you to sin, no matter how beneficial it is, do it. And he says that we might have to even lessen the quality of our lives in a way that would prevent ourselves from sinning a particular sin. Actually, what we're saying really originates with Jesus. He said that it's better to go to heaven maimed than to hell whole. Have you maimed yourself? Well, figuratively speaking, of course. Got to put that in there. In the area of sin, have you maimed yourself? Have you disabled your sinful thought process or sinful habits in your relationships with people? And in that context, you may have to do violence to your poor service habits or prayer habits. Be prepared to do whatever God would allow you to do to make sure that you serve well. That means overriding everything that is contrary to your desire to please Christ, whether it's laziness, bad habits, and yes, feelings contrary to a particular godly action. That's what I mean by forcing ourselves to do the obedient thing even when we don't feel like it. But, but isn't that hypocritical? Isn't that a hypocritical act to act, to act one way while feeling another? Aren't I a hypocrite if I'm the kind of, if I'm the person, someone that, if I'm kind to someone that I don't feel like being kind to? Isn't that hypocritical? Uh, absolutely not. Behaving in a way that doesn't feel like, be, that, that, that we don't feel like behaving is not hypocritical. Now, let me just prove that to you, okay, with some experience that we've all experienced. If I ask for a show of hands, of how many here enjoy getting up early in the morning on a cold winter day to go to work, getting dressed, and eating breakfast, brushing the snow off the car, scraping the ice off the windshield, a whole morning routine just to go to work, my guess is very few of you would say yes. And we would probably look askance to anyone who said yes. Well, you're right. I'd rather stay in a warm bed and sleep a couple of more hours. So are you a hypocrite for going to work when you don't feel like it? Of course not. You do what you know God has called you to do to, to, to pay the bills, put the food on the table, and not default on your mortgage even though you don't feel like going to work. And that would be exactly right. Now, if you said that you love to get up just to go to work early in the morning and really didn't, then you would be a hypocrite. Do you, see how, do you see the difference? It, it, it's very important that you see the difference here. We, we need to please God and obey him in the display of a, of, of a fruit that we don't feel much like displaying. Override your feelings to the contrary and love, rejoice, be patient, kind, practice self-control and so on. And when your patience is predicated, you see, on obeying God's command rather than on your feelings, you will display the fruit of the Spirit. And there's something else that may excite you. Predicating our fruit on obedient actions will also allow us 
to cultivate the appropriate corresponding emotion that we should be feeling. You see, it, it not only it will not only allow us to do the godly thing no matter how we feel, but it will also cultivate the appropriate corresponding emotion that we should be feeling. In other words, doing what we believe to be right is a sure way to feel right. Take Cain, for example. You remember that Cain became, Cain became very jealous of his brother Abel to the point where he became depressed. And then he wanted to kill his brother. He was so depressed. God confronts him with a rhetorical question, why are you depressed? The question is designed to indict Cain. The sentiment is this, you have no reason to be depressed. God continues with this explanation, if you do what you know to be right, will you not feel better? That's my translation. But it teases out the very meaning of God's statement. God says, you know what I have commanded you to do, and while you might be depressed and feel like ignoring what I say, the way to overcome your depressed feelings and feel better is to override your sinful anger and do what I say anyway, and you will feel better. Your countenance will be lifted up, old King James. Beloved, this is, is this not true of your experience? Let me, let me ask you, when you know that you are out of the will of God, how does that make you feel? I'm assuming it makes you feel terrible, if you're anything like I am. And there's the weight of guilt, the grieving of the Holy Spirit, the distance that we put between us and our Heavenly Father, the, the turmoil that results. Yeah, it's pretty miserable. And how do you feel when you confess to God, repent, and get right with him? pretty wonderful, light, free, joyful, motivated to greater acts of godliness. Of course, you know what I'm saying is right just by your experience, but we have something greater than experience. It's biblical. What God tells Cain is an ironclad principle. No matter what the situation, no matter how we feel about it, if we desire to please Christ, we will obey his will in that moment, no matter how we feel, to the contrary. And the more we stick to it, the better we will eventually feel about it. It has to be that way. We're wired that way. Now, those of you who experience the joy of working out know what I'm saying. I have worked out all my life. It's been a part of me, keeps my brain sharp. And I've been pretty, I have a pretty strict regimen that includes spending time in a cold basement in the morning to throw some weights around. And if you think going to work in the morning is a challenge, try lifting weights in a dark, damp basement. The point I want to make is that there are plenty of times where I don't feel like getting up and doing them. And I can make all kinds of excuses, but I know it's good for me. So I force myself against my feelings and I do what I know to be good for me and hours after, I'm so glad that I forced myself to, to do what I, I know was good for me. If you suffer from a toothache because you have a cavity but have always been afraid of the dentist chair, wisdom says override your feeling, get in the chair, and when it's over, you'll be glad you did. A young mother with a toddler goes to the beach. She sits her little boy 
all of three years old on a raft in one of the shallow tide pools left by low tide, and then sits in her lounge chair at, and gets lost in a good book. Hours later, she looks up to discover that the tide has worked its way in a bit and carried the raft and the boy out about 10 yards into deeper water. What you don't know about this mother is she's terrified of the ocean. Without a thought to her own phobia of the ocean, she swims out and saves him in seconds. Doesn't even think, just acts. Her love for the boy overrides her fear for her own life. At that point, she's very strong. I don't care what happens to me. It's my son I'm interested in. Our love for Christ should override our complacency or agony, as the case is with some, to show love or kindness or patience to our neighbor. And with the confidence that with that when we do, we will eventually experience the right and corresponding emotion. So let's recap. Fourth conclusion is that the fruit of the Spirit is a disposition before it is an action. You, you are before you act. The fifth conclusion is that the fruit itself is both an action and an emotion, but it is an action first. The Holy Spirit creates in us a new nature, which then allows us to have a new disposition, which we in turn then act out in our behavior, which then fosters the right and proper corresponding emotion. And that's how it works. Now we hasten to, uh, on to the sixth conclusion, and that is that this fruit is others-oriented. It's characteristic of Christians to be others-oriented serving one another, considering the interests of one another is more important than themselves. That, that's the outcome of a servant disposition. Christianity is always about the other person, his needs, his care, his maintenance, his interests. As much as the fruit has a personal element to it, you know, in that it is first a disposition, it's very much, it very much has an other's quality to it as well. In other words, it's not just for our benefit to be bearing fruit for Christ, it's for the benefit of others as well. And when we consider the fruit next time, their, relation, their, 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 uh, their relational aspect will become unmistakable to you. But for now, I want to say we minister to one another in our display of the fruit of the Spirit. And it greatly enhances our ability to serve. You become better. In your in interpersonal relationships, the better you become at expressing the fruit of the Spirit. That's true. People see all kinds of experts for their bad communication. But if you champion the fruit of the Spirit, you'll have very little trouble with that. How do unbelievers and fellow members of our local church benefit when they're on the receiving end of our spiritual fruit exactly? Well, for one, we give them a testimony to the person of Christ. Jesus is the epitome of this fruit, and when we display it properly and consistently, we represent the Lord fairly and accurately to them. And for another, believers who demonstrate a healthy crop of the fruit of the Spirit build up and they edify the body. They're like flowers. Flowers are 
are, insignif are, are significant to the whole ecological chain. We, we don't seem to realize that because we're so captivated by their aesthetic quality, but they have a place in the ecological system. They blossom and provide what's necessary for pollination in addition to a beautiful bouquet. The fruit of the Spirit blossoms in the life of a believer so that he builds up others in the body as well as provides a witness to the world of what Christians look like. When you're next to somebody who champions the fruit, it's so great to be with that person, and it's contagious. That's the point. The seventh and final conclusion we make in our, in our introduction of the fruit of the Spirit is this. The fruit is our responsibility. Paul certainly implies this when he commands us way back in verse 16 to walk by the Spirit. And the grammar there makes it clear that to walk by the Spirit means to produce his fruit. Now, whether it's obvious to you or not, it is certainly not obvious to many in Christianity who would see fruit here as being the sole responsibility of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, that might sound very spiritual, but let me assure you it's greatly misleading. Now, these folks just sit back and they do nothing, thinking that the Holy Spirit must be the one to produce this fruit through them. But that thinking misses the human element. God works through us, yes, but part of his ordained means of operation incorporates our obedience. There are actually two contributing factors here. There's God and there's us. God's part. Let's talk about that. I want to, uh, want to remind us and also be in agreement on the fact that we, a fact that we made already, the Holy Spirit is the one who establishes this fruit in every believer at the moment of salvation, which makes him the source of this fruit. He establishes it. He produces it in the believer. That's a truth supported even in the Old Testament, where we clearly see God developing righteous fruit in the lives of his people. This is how faithful God is. He plants his people spirit, in his people spiritual fruit that is sure to grow. He sees to its development and growth by a, a number of means, sometimes by discipline, sometimes by encouragement from others, other times through blessing or through trials and tests. The Old Testament worshiper understood that God both imparts life and holiness to him and sustains them both in him. Now, we could go to a number of places in the Old Testament to develop this theology of fruit, but I, one place that I particularly like comes out of the writings of the prophet Isaiah. He lived and he ministered to Israel when she was taken by the Babylonians into captivity. It was perhaps the darkest time in Israel's history. This was God's discipline. They were away from their temple. From Their beloved king was dead. Jerusalem was sacked. They now lived among a foreign people with a foreign language and served foreign gods who were unclean and offensive to them, who blasphemed Yahweh. Israel, Israelites were fruitless at this time, wasting away in their rebellion. Yet God never tears down his people without the promise of building them up again. That is a constant theme in the Old Testament. And there are portions in Isaiah's writing where the glimmers of hope shine through the turmoil. 
God will deliver. He will restore. He will cause his people to be fruitful once again. He will do this. And as we read these declarations, I want you to listen to the agricultural metaphors that Isaiah uses to speak of God's work. God is planting and growing and cultivating and prospering, bringing forth fruit in his people in its season. Isaiah 61, 3, and also verse 11, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah 44, 3 and 4, Fear not, Jacob, my servant, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows, by flowering, uh, flowing streams. This last passage explains in graphic terms the Lord's work in bringing about fruit-bearing worshipers. And we see that just as certain as a drought brings famine, so the absence of the Spirit working will bring about a terrible condition of spiritual death. Where there is no Holy Spirit, there is death. Where there is the Holy Spirit, there is life. And we might say then that just as certain as heavy rains will renew the parched vegetation, so an outpouring of the Spirit will bring about new life as well as revive life that is fainting. Isaiah 51.3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. The same thing carries over into the New Testament. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 1.6, he began this good work in you and will continue it until the day of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we are all with unveiled faces beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed by the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Wonderful thing happens at conversion, beloved. We have an instant and lasting desire to love and follow Christ. And as A.W. Pink explains in his treatment on this very subject, he says the tendency of the new nature is ever Godwards. But Pink was also astute enough to admit that in the same breath, quote, yet it has no power of its own being entirely dependent upon its creator and giver. God is an essential part of our fruit-bearing lives. In fact, that fruit which is seen in us by others is expressly called the fruit of the Spirit so that the honor and the glory may be ascribed to God alone. God says to Israel through the prophet Hosea, from me comes your fruit. Now there's our part. That was God's part. There's another part to this fruit-bearing process. It's our part. While God is 
credited with a fruitful display of righteousness in our lives. He is not credited for the times we yield a bad crop. He is not responsible for the periods of spiritual drought in our lives, the wilted fruit, the bad fruit, the fruitless, sinful moments. We are. And that brings us to the other side of this. Believers are responsible to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, to bring a productive yield to God. While God will do his part to establish and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in us, we are responsible to cultivate it ourselves. And make no mistake, this requires a great deal of effort on our parts. You don't coast through this, beloved. A fruitful outcome is commensurate with heavy labor on our part. We must water and cultivate and prune and and give our constant attention to this process. Hear Pink on this. Quote, but here too, there is to be a, a concurrence between the Christian and the spirit. Our responsibility is to cherish and cultivate our graces and to resist and reject everything which opposes and hinders them. Fruit is neither our invention nor our product. Nevertheless, it requires our diligence. As 2 Peter 1.5 plainly indicates, a, neglect garden, a neglected garden grows weeds in plenty, and then it flowers and fruits are quickly crowded out. The gardener has to be continually alert and active, turn to and ponder Psalm 1 and see what has to be avoided and what has to be done if the believer is to bring forth his fruit in season. Reread John 15 and note the conditions of fruitlessness, I'm sorry, fruitfulness, and then turn the same into an earnest prayer The Lord, in his grace, makes both writer and reader successful horticulturalists in this spiritual realm, end quote. Well, Christians will seek to practice this fruit. It is their responsibility, and with the new nature, they will. They will seek to practice this fruit that they have received and are able by God's grace to practice Because if they don't, well, then they have a good reason to question their faith. Our Father in God, we are so grateful for the opportunity we have to study the fruit of the Spirit, even though it is by way of introduction. And we have raised many truths that we will deal with more aggressively and comprehensively. We nevertheless have been humbled by your truth and we do pray your patience with us as we seek to live Christ to the world, as we seek to live the fruit of the Spirit, as we strive to walk by him cultivate this important fruit and put to death anything that might hinder us or prevent its growth and prevent a a good and sure harvest Oh, God, we do pray you will then use us in great ways to bring about your glory and your glorious ends for this church and for the world as you have us each in your plans. We pray that you would then be honored and sufficiently glorified by all that we do and say as a result of our time spent in the word today in your presence. 
and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.